You're listening to That'll Preach. This is Brian. I'm with my co-host, Dr. Paul Rizcala, and we have a special guest today. We are live with Dr. Marshall Pearson. We've got a lot of doctors on this show. Uh, Paul, obviously being a professor up at Hillsdale, just repping the icy cold north of Michigan. I'm actually here live with uh, Marshall, and he actually brought his son, Garrison, who, how old is Garrison? Two and a half months. Two and a half months. So we have our very first infant as a guest on our podcast. So if you hear little infant noises, those are actually not coming from Garrison. They're coming from Paul. Paul Rizcala likes to make infant noises. We don't know why. It's just something that he does to develop a developmental issue that he's had his whole life. So that is the issue with Paul, but Garrison is here with us and he's going to chime in from time to time with his two-month-old insight into philosophy. But uh, Marshall, we're glad to, to have you here. Yes, and I'm both glad to be here. Always looking forward to opportunities to talk philosophy and theology with you two. Well, let's get right to it. I mean, one of the things that uh, you've written is a an article on a topic that seems a little bit uh, maybe to non-philosopher types, it kind of seems like you're just sort of, it seems kind of abstract, but it's actually a very practical thing you're talking about. You're talking about the connection between virtue and happiness. Um, now, could you just, you know, like talk to us like we're five-year-olds. What do you, what do you mean? What, 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 what inspired you to look at the connection between virtue and happiness? What is virtue? What is happiness? And why are you so concerned about seeing a connection between those two things? Yeah, great questions, Brian. So uh, I'm interested in the connection between virtue and happiness because philosophers for a really long time have been interested in the connection between virtue and happiness. There has been a project going back at least since Socrates to basically show that you will be happier if you're a good person or if you live a good life. And it's notoriously difficult to actually make good on that account, to really show that in some sense you will be happier, you personally will be better off if you become a virtuous person who lives for other people and sort of lives well in accordance with the moral law. Now, what do I mean by these notions of virtue and happiness? Well, by virtue, I fundamentally mean having the, uh, uh, virtue are those sets of character traits which enable one to live well, to act well non-accidentally. So, presumably, that it is sometimes the right thing to risk your life, say, jump into a lake to save a drowning child or rush into a burning building to save someone. And in those situations, if you want to do the right thing and you want to do it reliably, you're going to have to be a courageous person because only the courageous person is able to confront their fear and do what's right in spite of the fear they otherwise might have at the thought of pain or death. Similarly, if you want to resist temptation, you're going to have to be a temperate person. If you want to be able to take care of other people the way they ought to be taken care of, you're going to have to be a just person. If you want to be able to achieve things that are morally important in the world, you're going to have to be prudent. You're going to have to have practical wisdom to know how you should spend your life and what you should dedicate your time to. And so these various virtues are all ways that we are able to, as a person, live well and live well because we have the sort of insight and moral vision to know what the right thing to do is and then follow through and do that thing. Happiness is uh, a little different. Happiness can be understood in a number of ways, but the way that I tend to talk about it in this work is the idea that happiness is something like enjoyment. It's having a pleasant in some way life. Um, the notion of happiness that I'm appealing to in this work tends to be a term, uh, tends to be closely associated with what a lot of philosophers will sometimes call pleasure. 
I don't mean to have a particularly uh, specific notion of pleasure, right? So we can take pleasure in playing video games. We can take pleasure in eating delicious food and having sex and taking walks. All these things are enjoyable in some fairly deep sense. And what I'm trying to understand is the connection between being a good person and enjoying life. And the reason I find this connection so important is because it seems like both happiness and virtue are in some ways non-optional, the sort of things we have to care about. Uh, this might be clear if you think about it from the perspective of a parent. So as a parent, you want your kid to grow up to be virtuous. You want your child to be courageous. You want them to be temperate. You want them to be just. But you also want them to be happy. Um, you would be disappointed as a parent. You'd be sad as a parent. You'd be grieved as a parent if your child was a good person but was just miserable in their life. Similarly, you'd be disappointed if your child was perfectly happy but was just a bad person who didn't care for others. Both of these things would bother you, and they should bother you. Because virtue is important and happiness is important. And the problem is because we have to care about both these things, it would be really, really tragic if there's some sense in which you have to pick one or the other. That ultimately you'll be happier if you become more vicious or less virtuous. Or that you'll uh, be more vicious if you become happier. If there's a sort of trade-off there, if it turns out that virtue can come apart from happiness, then as a parent you face this really tragic choice, right? What do I care about more in my child of these two goods that I need to care about as a good parent? You're not a good parent if you don't want your child to be happy. You're not a good parent if you don't want your child to be virtuous. Similarly, uh, you should care that you are happy and you should care that you're virtuous. So if these things come apart, if these things can sort of be in battle with one another, it creates this really tragic moral situation. And so a lot of philosophers have tried to show that we can draw a connection between virtue and happiness and vindicate the thought that you really will be happier to the extent you're a more virtuous person. So like imagine, um, so let's, let's take an, an example of somebody who's not happy in their marriage and they want to leave it. So there you have a sense in which they're not feeling pleasure at the moment, but they wouldn't really have a good reason to leave their marriage. It would be unvirtuous. It would not be virtuous for them to do so. Um, would you be saying that, um, that if that person were more virtuous, they would be happy in their marriage? So th this is a great question. Um, there is a case, this is a case of a trade-off, right? So one of the elements of justice is promise keeping, right? Marriage is a promise. You're promising to stay faithful and promising to continue in this way. And there might be ways in which your life is easier if you were just willing to break your promises. If you like didn't think promises were that important and thought it was okay to break a promise, there might be ways in which your life would simplify. Uh, and indeed, I think that for many people, your present life will be more pleasant if you break promises. I think in general that there is not a perfect connection here in this life on earth right now in this fallen world between the choice to be virtuous and the choice to be happy. I think sometimes cheaters win. I think sometimes bad people live more pleasant lives. I think good people are sometimes suffer and suffer dearly for standing up and doing the right thing. Nevertheless, I want to argue, I think, that the Christian should think that ultimately virtue will be vindicated in terms of happiness. That in the long run, when we take sort of uh, true final perspective of what human beings are for and where human beings will end up in the eschaton, in that perspective, we recognize that ultimately there is no trade-off, that there is never a situation where you will be happier to the extent that you compromise on virtue, and that it just does not pay in the long run to say that uh, I'm going to break promises because they're just not that important. So you're saying that there there seems to be some connection between a virtuous life, pursuing the good, and the experience of pleasure, the experience of happiness. But it doesn't always obtain in every circumstance, 
And the world is a tragic place. And like you said, people who cheat, they experience happiness and pleasure by doing a non-virtuous thing. And on the flip side, there are people who are virtuous, who sacrifice greatly for something, and it costs them a great deal of, they're not feeling pleasure. Let's say they're in prison for standing up for something just, or in the case of, you think about the Apostle Paul, or many of the missionaries, or the saints of the past, having to, at great costs and great loss of comfort to themselves and pleasure to themselves, done something that was courageous and virtuous. So you, you, you're, it sounds like you're saying there's some connection there that's maybe intuitive even, but it doesn't obtain in all circumstances. So for the, for the times when virtue and happiness don't always line up, you've got to have an ultimate goal on the horizon that eventually at, the, at some point, and in Christian theology, it would be, like you said, the eschaton, the final judgment, the final rectifying of all things at the return of Christ. That's where some of these tensions now resolve. Is that kind of where yeah. you're going with that? Yeah, that's the basic thought. So one way we might think about this is there's this fascinating philosopher, Henry Sidgwick, and he was one of these people who thought, look, there's two things that we can talk about as a thing you might be dedicating to your life. You might dedicate your life to what he calls benevolence, a concern for yourself and other people. Or you could dedicate your life to egoism, a mere concern for yourself. And he wants to say, look, it'd be really troubling if these things come apart in some deep sense, because then we have to face a choice. What do we care about, ourselves or others? And there'd be no way to ultimately reconcile these perspectives. And what Sidgwick argued is that for the most part, these things are going to follow through, right? For the most part, if you're cheating games, you'll be found out and people won't really like you very much. Uh, if you keep leaving your marriages, you'll be less happy than if you stick with it and really develop the fortitude necessary to overcome conflict. And indeed, there's a decent number of studies that suggest that people who tend to be more virtuous, who donate more to charity, who attend church more regularly, who resist short-term uh, temptations, these people do indeed tend to have higher levels of life satisfaction. But it's certainly, but it's only a sort of general connection, right? They're going to be tight corners. There are going to be situations where it's just not going to be true in this situation, that the virtuous action will be rewarded with happiness. And it's in those tight corners that I think we often need some way to take a different perspective on our own choice uh, and recognize that our choice is not fundamentally tragic, that it's not going to be one of those situations where if we choose to do the right thing, we're just writing off our own happiness in some ultimate sense. Yeah, we might write off our happiness in the short-term sense, but I think that it'd be really, really tragic um, and there'd be appropriate sort of despair to take towards morality if it turned out that sometimes morality has required us to write off our hope for happiness uh, ultimately. And so I do think that one of the things that, and indeed many philosophers have argued that one of the reasons that you should be a theist or one of the reasons why a theist has a more compelling and coherent account of morality is because the theist is able to articulate a connection between happiness and virtue that's more than just often the case. So Sidgwick ends his book by saying, look, I've tried for 600 pages to show these two things are the same, that they'll always line up, and they won't unless God exists. And maybe if God exists, he can do it because God will reward you for being virtuous and punish you for being vicious. But Sidgwick thinks unless God exists, you're not going to be able to make good on that connection. So it seems like if you're an atheist, the most you can say is, it seems like most of the time there's a pattern that if you do something virtuous, it comes with it a sensation of pleasure. Uh, if you help people, help a poor person, if you help out somebody in need, you feel good. And so that could be a reason why you'd want to keep doing that. But that doesn't obtain in every circumstance. And so you're saying we need a, a wider vision that God provides something that a non-theistic framework doesn't when it comes to connecting virtue and happiness. So the most that an atheist could say is sometimes 
virtue and happiness, or even often virtue and happiness. But it can't say that in all cases it will. But you can say with God and with a doctrine of the final judgment and the eschaton and all those things, that is a way in which all those tangled threads, all those instances, let's say you die a martyr, you don't experience pleasure immediately, but there will be a pleasure that you will experience one day. So you can say across the board, virtue will lead to the sensation of pleasure and happiness. It just not, it, it, it may not just obtain immediately or even in this life, but there is a future hope where those things will connect. That's right. So martyrdom is sort of one of the classic examples given here. And I think it raises a second point. So it's not just that in general, this connection seems to, uh, the connection only seems to obtain in general for the most part. Uh, but also the connection seems more plausible uh, when we're dealing with weaker notions of virtue. And the further you go from what I might call moderate virtue, I think the less plausible it is to see a connection between virtue and earthly happiness. So I expect on average that those who tithe are happier than those who don't. But what about those who sell all their possessions and give the proceeds to the poor? I'd be, you know, it might be that that is going to compromise so much of your comfort that you're not going to have more pleasure in this life. Or expect those who volunteer three hours a week are happier than those who don't. But what about those who give up a career they love to serve the poor in Libya? You might not see the same returns when we move beyond what we might call sort of everyday virtue that's rewarded. Um, indeed, once you start going beyond that is the start where, you know, powerful people have an incentive to kill you because you pose a threat to the comfort of the worldly. Now, Paul, why is why is Marshall wrong? So I don't I don't think Marshall's wrong. I just think that uh, actually I'm very sympathetic to the view. Um, it does commit you to a lot of other things. So, for example, like if, Mormonism. <laughs> um, if if you're an atheist, for example, uh, or it, let, let's say it turns out to be, we turn out to find out that there's no eternal life, that God doesn't exist, then it does severely undercut ethics in an important way, which which might be fine. And this might be just another feather in the cap of theism, as Marshall was pointing out earlier that the the problem of tying the connection between virtue and happiness might just not be super feasible, or you might not get as good of an explanation on a non-theistic picture. Um, but what Marshall's not saying is that the moral motivation for being virtuous is fear of punishment or um, the hope of reward in the afterlife. At least I don't think so. I, I think that the connection between why I should do this thing and why it's ultimately good for me and conducive to my happiness um, is something that can't be secured on a non-theistic picture, or at least a picture where you don't have eternal life. And this is a point that Sidgwick and Kant and other people sort of gesture at, but yeah, like it is, it is a big problem. Like how do you, how do you secure that connection? And if you don't have an eternal life, uh, then you can get sort of a general overlap where sometimes these things come together. But to have it really tight the way Marshall wants to, um, it seems that you do need not just a theistic picture, but a theistic picture where we live on in very specific ways with sort of enhanced human bodies and can still feel pleasure and relate to one another and do things like that. So a, a very specific Christian picture is what I'm saying. So Christianity in particular secures this connection. Yeah. So let me say two things in this regard. The first is... I don't tend to think that the real reason we need to reconcile virtue and happiness is because otherwise we don't have reason to be virtuous or to act morally. 
So uh, not even Sidgwick thought this. What Sidgwick thought, for instance, was that you could not have decisive reason to act morally because you'd have to choose. Do I act on my moral reasons or do I act on my selfish reasons? I actually don't think it's you even get that much because I think we do have decisive reason to be moral rather than happy. I think if it really turned out to be a trade-off where you could pick raise your kid to be good or raise your kid to be happy, you need to raise them to be good. I think in your own life, if you face a choice between doing what's right or doing what's easy, you have to do what's right. Uh, so my position is not that you wouldn't have reason to be virtuous, but rather that there'd be something really unfortunate or something really tragic uh, or something worthy to mourn about the way the world is if it turned out there was not this connection. Um, and that tends to be my own view here because my own ethical thinking really tends to start with moral obligations come first and considerations of happiness come second. Now, there are other philosophical traditions that don't say that. So there are... Um, Traditions which treat the individual person's good as really fundamental to understanding our ethical duties. And on these accounts, you're going to have a more serious problem if you can't make this account where you just like can't even have morality unless you can show the connection between morality and happiness. Uh, I don't tend to have those sort of views, but plenty of philosophers do. And for them, this sort of project is going to be even more important. The second thing that's an important qualification is, well, I gave Sidgwick as an example of someone who thinks that, hey, look, theism can solve this connection because theism can say God's going to reward you for acting well and punish you for acting poorly. What my papers actually do is try to give a different mechanism that explains that connection between virtue and happiness and says, look, if you're a theist, you have reason to hope that these connections will occur, but not just by means of reward or punishment. That in fact, even if God does not set out to reward um, the virtuous or punish the guilty, but instead lavish all goods on all people to the greatest extent he can, you would nevertheless have a situation where you are better off being virtuous and there's going to be this connection. So one of the things that I want to suggest is that um, Ultimately, we can explain this connection not by saying that individual people get a reward for being virtuous. And that's just a sort of external reward that God just happens to set up as there's no connection between the virtue and the happiness, except that God happens to draw a connection. But there's a much closer and deeper connection. And that's because ultimately, I think what God will do is he will make the world good. And when God makes the world good, the only people who will be able to enjoy that good world are people whose desires are rightly lined up with how things should be. So we might think about it this way. The just person fundamentally desires that things be as they ought. Um, I'm envious if I want Paul's bike, but I'm not envious if I want my own bike. Um, to want my own things is just a proper desire to have. And so if I want things to be distributed as they should be distributed, then if I exist in the new creation when God has finally made all things new and set all things to rights, then I will be happy with the way things are distributed. But if instead I'm a white supremacist, if I'm the sort of person who doesn't just care about my own happiness, but really thinks it's important that I be more happy than other people of different races around me, then in the new creation where all people are put in the rightful hierarchies and qualities of the new creation, I will, no matter how happy I happen to be in some sense, feel insulted and degraded by the fact that I'm put in a position of equality with those who I consider less than. I will be insulted by being one in body of Christ with other people who I regard to be a contagion to that moral community. And so there's a way in which when things are put correct, when things are put right, virtue is necessary to enjoy things being that proper way. 
And here it's not that you just happen to be rewarded, as though God could equally reward you for being vicious if you wanted to. No, it's that God will make things good, and the virtuous are the people who will then enjoy things being as they ought to be. And I think this gives us a new way to see this connection. And what most of my work does is it tries to articulate why that connection would be true for the various virtues, in particular the virtues of courage, justice, temperance, prudence, and charity. So, Marshall, why are you a white supremacist? <laughs> That's all I got from that. I'm just kidding. Don't we're gonna. They, this is not. This is. Uh, we we could we can get in trouble for having that. Uh, we're we're gonna be canceled for that. We've already been canceled by many many people. So this is true. We're used this to is it. True. But that's a. This is a, this is what I find so compelling. I mean, I think what you're really talking about is is one of the, is the beatitudes when Jesus talks about you know the pure in heart are gonna see God that that your moral virtue that the kind of person or the kind of character you have your godliness affects your vision of who of what the kingdom is it affects whether you see clearly for example the image of god in other people and it also affects your own sense of pleasure in the things that god loves so i i think about you know paul and i just did a podcast on the abolition of man we're going through the abolition of man one of the things that lewis talks about is how education is to train you to love what is good and to not love what is evil that our affections matter that even in a perfect world where everyone has what they need there's something in you that wants more and it's that something in you that wants more that vice that sin that makes a perfect world unbearable to you i mean i think it's a classic you often hear this sometimes with evangelists where they'll say you know people who reject God, who don't want to live under God's rule now, are going to hate living under God's rule in eternity. Yeah, and uh, it, it, it sounds super compelling and sounds very Lewisian, like you brought up. And um, there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of probably explicit connections. And maybe, Marshall, you were inspired by the great divorce in a lot of ways. Uh, there's the example of um, the guy who sees the murderer or the, the person who was sort of, uh, sort of a a vagabond and a wretch in his life and they meet in heaven and he just can't accept that this man is there. He can't accept that God's grace was big enough to include this person in, in the new creation. And so uh, his enjoyment of the new creation was spoiled by not being able to recognize that his own position there was a gift and that God's grace is big enough to include people who did terrible things uh, in their earthly life. And so so yeah, his his experience was tainted as a result of not being able to to grasp the gift, not having the right vision through which to see the new creation. At the end of your article, and maybe this is maybe we should have started with this. You have this dialogue in from the Lord of the Rings about Gollum or Smeagol, and that's a fascinating. Why, why did you choose that section to end your article on? What does that illuminate in your position? Well, so the biographical reason I picked this section to end the paper on is that this is the second paper in a three-paper trilogy I'm working on. The first one ended with an excerpt from the Chronicles of Narnia, and it was for mostly Protestant audiences. And since this one is mostly for Catholic audiences, I decided I had to end it with an excerpt from Tolkien. That said, uh, the deeper, sort of more philosophical or theological reason to end with this passage is because it's a passage which I think explains the way in which one of the terrible consequences of vice is that by becoming a bad person, we can come to hate the only type of good that we can still receive from other people. So, indeed, we get these sort of stories in places like The Great Divorce, 
uh, by Lewis, but we get this in lots of places that one of the things about becoming, for instance, a bitter person is that we come to be upset or hate uh, the idea that other people might help us because it just confirms to ourselves our own wretchedness and that's something that we can't bear to see. And so one of the terrible, terrible things about vice is not just that it makes you miserable, but that it makes you hate the very possibilities that would be the bridge to becoming virtuous and escaping that misery. You come to be repelled by the sort of grace that you might receive, for instance. And indeed, this is a sort of deep philosophical thought that one of the effects of becoming vicious is that you then choose poorly when it comes to moral goods and so become worse and worse, that vice begets vice because the vicious people tend to live poorly. And so I think one of the things that's nice about this account is it explains why faith is so fundamentally essential to any way that we might be able to become godly. And that's because if we are indeed vicious, bad people, then we will hate those things necessary. or We will naturally be disposed to hate those things necessary for us to become good. And so we are not in a position to, by our own efforts or by our own wisdom or via our own self-direction, to be able to take those steps necessary for the purification of our souls, even when we recognize that that purification of our souls is what's necessary for our happiness. And even though we really do want to be happy, we so hate the good that we're unable to make that transition absent grace and absent the work that Christ does uh, in our lives. Okay, well, can you explain the, the Gullum scene a little bit sure. that you used? So in this passage, um, Frodo is talking with Smeagol and asking if he's hungry. And Smeagol says, yes, he is. Uh, and wondering what they have to eat, if they have any fish. And they don't. They don't have fish. The only thing they have is lembas, which is a type of cake that they took from the elven realm. And Gollum has been so twisted over time that he simply hates those things which are associated with the elves, where the elves sort of represent a sort of unfallen, holy race. Um, and Smeagol is just so tainted that these things are sort of repulsive to him. And so he tries to eat some and he starts choking and spitting up and he cries out, dust and ashes. Um, uh, he can't eat that. He must starve. Uh, and then Smeagol starts talking to himself, but Smeagol doesn't mind. Smeagol has promised he'll starve. He can't eat hobbit food. He'll starve or thin Smeagol. And Frodo ends up replying, I'm sorry, said Frodo, but I can't help you, I'm afraid. I th and this is the crucial bit. I think this food would do you good if you would try, but perhaps you can't even try. Not yet, anyway. And so the situation we're in is Frodo only has these good and helpful things to give Gollum. He only has Lembas. And this Lembas might really be good. It might do Gollum good if he were able to eat it. Um, but because Gollum is so twisted by vice, that such goods are to him a misery. Uh, and eventually Gollum gets in this position where there is nothing to eat except good things to eat. There no longer are things that are bad for him to indulge in. Similarly, I think in the new creation, right? Like if you're, an, if you're an intemperate person, if you're someone who just wants to indulge an intemperate desire, then you should be aware that we are destined for a place where there will no longer be uh, bad things to indulge in. And so if all the pleasures you get in life come from doing what you think wrong, come from that you know, little bit of pleasure we get from transgression, if we are indeed destined for a place where that transgression is no longer possible, then we will come to a situation where the only things that are still available to us, the only things that God leaves still available to us, are things that do us good, and those are precisely the things that we've come to hate uh, via the systematic indulgence and vice. So you were mentioning the parallel is we're, we're Smeagol in our natural state. The gospel is a good thing. Christ is a good thing to us. But because of sin in us, we don't have the taste buds for it, or we, 
find what is ultimately good for us to be, <laughs> I guess in Smeagol's case, disgusting. And that's where it sounds like you're saying grace comes in to enable us to actually want the very thing or to find desirable the thing that is good for us. Um, that's a very interesting way to, to, to look at it. I mean, I think and that's why I really liked how you added that at the end, because in a narrative sense, you get to see like, why would you rather starve than eat this bread that's going to give you life? And then you think, well, that is a great picture of the human condition underneath the vice grip of, of sin. That's exactly right. I do think here it's important for uh, to, to make an important distinction. And this is a tradition grounded in a lot of um, the church's tradition. And that's between what we might call sort of earthly happiness and Christian beatitude. Um, so earthly happiness is, I take it, the sort of happiness that a good person would be able to have just on a sort of good earth. Um, and that's a great thing, right? It's good to have sort of earthly and natural happiness. So like health, being healthy, having family, enjoying right. nature, things like that. Right. Like, like imagine there was no injustice going on in the world, right? Like we cured all the diseases. Right. We, we eliminated all those sources of evil in this world. If you're a good person, you'll be able to have immense sort of happiness in that life. Um, that's not what Christians hope for. Christians don't merely hope for the enjoyment of a good world and the enjoyment of their own life. Christianity holds out a much more profound hope, which is that we won't just get to enjoy a good world. We won't just get to enjoy our life. We'll get to enjoy God himself, right? The Christian hope is one that holds out the beatific vision. And so I think we need to separate out a sort of lower happiness, a lower natural happiness, and a higher spiritual or heavenly happiness. And similarly, we have to separate out a lower set of virtues, the cardinal virtues, courage, temperance, justice, prudence, and a higher virtue, the higher virtue of charity or love. Um, you know, the highest of the heavenly virtues and the Christian tradition. And what most of my work has focused on is the way in which the cardinal virtues are necessary for earthly happiness in the new creation. But then there's a sort of much more profound and deep fact, which is that the Christian hope is not just the hope that we'll be able to have an earthly happiness uh, in the new creation. We won't just be able to enjoy a perfect world that God creates, but we'll in some sense have the opportunity to enjoy God himself. That the vision of God will be the object of our final enjoyment. And that's something that can be made and achieved only through charity. This is an important distinction because the Christian tradition has also maintained that where you can have some degree of natural virtue um, be, by being raised by good parents and things like this, uh, charity is an infused virtue, the sort of thing that one can only acquire via the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so it's this reason why there's a sort of profound anti-Pelagian element when you understand the Christian picture as one on which the ultimate thing we hope for is the beatific vision, the vision of God, the enjoyment of God himself, which is something we can only enjoy through charity. And charity is a virtue that you can't just get from your parents. You can't get it by friends. It's not the sort of thing where mere iron sharpening iron is going to be able to make you charitable. To be able to love God himself is a gift that only God can give and something that we need to be open to and receive from him uh, if we want to uh, be able to have that sort of profound, all-encompassing and absolute happiness from eternity. So is this, uh, I mean, is this Christian hedonism? Are we getting a little John Piperish here? Or is that along the same lines? Paul just, I don't know if Paul just had a good or bad reaction just now. It's not Christian hedonism. Okay, what, what, is the, what is the difference between this and Christian hedonism? So the difference between this and Christian hedonism is that hedonism maintains that the good in some deep sense is pleasure. 
that the thing that we ultimately are after is our own happiness. Now, own happiness in God or something of this sort. Um, but I tend to think that's the wrong way to think about these things. And indeed, my own account suggests that if all we cared about was hedonism, um, there could be two ways that God could get us there, right? God could make us good people who enjoy him, or God could make us bad people in a really, really terrible world. Um, you know, like God could plug you into an experience machine where you just torture people all day and also make you a really terrible person who really, really enjoys torture. And there's no principled reason to think that, you know, that you'll have more pleasure in, uh, that good people have more pleasure in good than bad people have pleasure in bad. Maybe that's true, but it's not essential to the story I want to tell here. Instead, what I want to maintain is that, uh, Pleasure, happiness, enjoyment, these are good things, but they are conditionally good. And they're conditionally good because they depend on the goodness of the object that you experience that happiness in in the first place. So there's various ways to sort of illustrate this point. Um, but one of them, I think, you know, is an easy one. You know, now that my parents particularly vivid to me, it's a sort of old philosophical uh, thought experiment, which says, look, suppose that you were kidnapped uh, and your child was kidnapped and then someone sort of tortured your child in front of you. To be a terrible, terrible, terrible experience. And now suppose that at the same time, while you're watching a kid be tortured, they stick some electrodes into your brain and activate the pleasure center so that you're experiencing these waves of pleasure uh, while uh, at the fact that your child's being tortured. And thought is that would make the situation much worse, not better. That to experience pleasure in bad things makes the situation worse, not better. And to experience pleasure in good things makes the situation better. So the way Aristotelians talk about this is that um, pleasure perfects the enjoyment of good things, but it's not itself the good that you care about. Um, so it's not that what I want is my enjoyment of God. What I want is God, and the enjoyment of God perfects my wanting of him. Similarly, it's not that the just person wants the enjoyment of living in a just world. The just person wants justice, and because they're just, they enjoy that, and that perfects um, the experience of justice for them. And so this is why it differs from hedonism, because hedonism really does treat pleasure as the explanatory good, whereas on the picture that I want to suggest, pleasure is instead a sort of added excellence, but is not the fundamental one. So you would say that a Christian hedonism, a kind of piperish view would be pursuing God is the way to get to this thing called pleasure versus what you're saying is pursuing God is good and a virtuous person will find great pleasure in pursuing it because it's good. So I've not read Piper since early from like 10 years ago. And I definitely remember he like says various things to avoid the implication being that you're not pursuing God, but instead pursuing the pleasure of God. But ultimately I think that either his account becomes far less interesting and innovative than he thinks it is, um, <laughs> or it really does require you to say in shots some sense that you are concerned with the enjoyment of God and not God himself. We take lots of shots um, against Christian hedonism on this podcast, so this is just more ammunition. But to, to well, come, but I mean, to, when you do that, do you, do you find pleasure when you take shots in it, or are to, you taking uh, pleasure in a bad thing, in a vice? To come back in slightly in defense of Piper, I think he does say that there is a... Uh, a maximum cap uh, in so when you're doing evil, you can only derive so much pleasure, and so humans are so constituted that you just cannot escape that maximum, and so you can only achieve the greatest good or the greatest pleasure in worshiping God or something like that. So that that is that is an assumption in his account. I don't know if he actually motivates it or argues for it, but he does think that that's a thing. Now, talk about. Um what is the traditional answer of hell being retributive and why you want a non-retributive view of hell? 
and how that connects in. Because that's something that you talk about, that uh, one of the ways that the connection uh, can be secure between virtue and happiness is divine retribution or eternal hell or God pouring out his wrath for eternity. That is a very standard Christian view. Um, what is your take on that traditional way of connecting virtue and happiness? Yeah, so this is coming back to that passage of Sidric that I talked about earlier, where Sidric says, look, the reason the theist can connect virtue and happiness is because God will make sure he, that anyone who does bad will be punished for the evil they do. Anyone who does well will be rewarded. And the problem I have with this picture is that in some deep, so A, I think there's various philosophical problems with the idea that the suffering of the wicked is good in itself. I think that um, there's a sort of intuition that we have for this, but that intuition can be largely explained by um, evolutionary impulses, which result in a strong tit-for-tat intuition, because that tends to be a good way to keep sort of society structured. Um, and I think that we have reason to doubt the sort of moral insight provided by that. But much more deeply, I think that it is in some ways in tension with the Christian picture of who God is, right? God is a loving and merciful God. Because I think that on these pictures in which justice really does say it's bad if the wicked are just forgiven, is one where you have to think that there is some cost to divine mercy, some moral cost to divine mercy. That there's like perhaps, you know, the, the value of the mercy justifies the cost to the loss of justice by us not being punished. But I think in a sort of deep sense, there's an implausible view of what divine forgiveness is. And indeed, the very fact that it seems like God forgives us leads to the thought that if it's just the fact that God will punish us for our sins that connects virtue and happiness, then for those who are saved, there's no longer a connection there. Because God forgives you, you're not going to be punished. Um, and so you really do have this situation. Well, look, your sins are forgiven. So, you know, you might as well sin um, because this connection has been severed. But so, that's not the Christian picture. And it's an implausible one. Okay, so let me let me just because I think this is kind of technical language. And I'm, I just want to make sure I'm tracking. One of the things you're saying is. So somebody who cheats their whole life and gets rich and lives a life of luxury and comfort. That's an example, if you don't have God, of somebody who has shown that the connection between virtue and happiness doesn't always obtain. Because here's an, a non-virtuous person being very happy by evil means, right? And you go, but a way that we can rectify that in the Christian view is say, yeah, but in the next life, he will suffer. He will be punished. He will experience the unhappiness that he, quote unquote, evaded in the present life. And that's how all accounts are settled. And you're saying that that's actually not a great way of looking at it because for people who have sinned, but who have been forgiven by Christ, by faith in Christ, that's actually severing the connection because they've lived a sinful life. And in the end, they're not receiving any lack of pleasure. They're still receiving all the pleasure while not pursuing virtue by the fact that they're forgiven. So it would almost be like a person who cheats their whole life, but they repent of it. Now, there's no point where they receive the unhappiness that comes with cheating. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? So that way, there is no connection. Now there's still an exception to living virtuously and experiencing pleasure. Right. So if, if the reason why the wicked suffer is because God wrathfully wills that they suffer, right? That God inflicts pain upon them um, because he thinks it's good that they suffer then that would indeed show you why, if you want to be happy, you should not act poorly. 
Um, but it's only going to do so insofar as we think that there is no limit on divine justice, that God really will make sure that people suffer uh, the exact extent that they deserve for their wickedness. But I don't think that's the Christian picture. The Christian picture is not so strongly attributivist as to think that merely divine justice is going to give us the sort of connection we want between happiness and virtue. And indeed, I think we have sort of good moral reasons to be troubled by such pictures of sort of vindictiveness in its own right. I think that um, it's a sort of philosophical mistake to think it's good to think to think it's good that the wicked suffer just as such. Um, and so this alternative account, we say, no, it's not that God sets out to give bad things to the wicked to punish them. Rather, I think we can have this picture where God instead simply says, I'm going to give everyone all the good things I can. Um, but it's also the case that only good people can enjoy, can fully enjoy those good things that God is going to give them. And this is not because God is sort of vindictively going to give the wicked things they don't enjoy because they don't enjoy it, right? That would be a picture in which God's sort of subjecting you to punishment. So it's a situation where, you know, I'm going to feed my child food they hate, right? Just to punish them, you know, for their behavior. Um, as though it's just good that they suffer. I, I don't think that's the picture of, um, the love that God has for us in scripture uh, or in church tradition, ultimately, though there are passages that seem to suggest as much. Instead, I think what's going on is that God wants to give us all good things. He wants to give all good things to all people and doesn't want to hold back any good things from anyone. But because God will only give us good things in the end, he won't give us bad things. He won't put us in a position where we can watch people be tortured. He won't put us in a position where we can be superior to people of other races. He won't put us in a position where we can indulge our appetites sort of eternally uh, in ways that are intemperate. He won't put us in a position where we can hide our face from him and so continue uh outside of his presence. He, 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 he insists on us being put in good positions for our own good because it's actually bad for us to take pleasure in bad things. That becoming, like, like to take pleasure in evil is in many ways worse for us um, than to not have those evil things to take pleasure in. And so in this picture, I think we can explain why God merely, mer like, mercifully caring for each person, trying to put give each person the greatest good they can receive. You would nevertheless have a situation where because one of the features of virtue is that you can have more enjoyment in good things, then God lavishly laying all good things he can to all people would still create this picture where that's enjoyable for those who are virtuous and not enjoyable to those who are vicious. And so you get an account, much like the traditional Christian picture, of the outcomes of heaven, hell, purgatory, and the heavenly ranks without appealing to any notion that God sees the suffering of the wicked as a good thing or something to aim at or bring about for its own sake. So I guess we're kind of pushing back against sort of hell as God's personal torture chamber. Mm -hmm. um, we're kind of like influenced by maybe medieval artwork or things like that, but also not going to a universal thing of saying everybody's saved in the end. You're still saying there is a, there is a suffering that the those who reject Christ, who who are enslaved to their sin for eternity, there is a suffering they experience, but it's not a retributive suffering. It's the suffering that, like you would say, a white supremacist would feel in a kingdom of diversity, or somebody who was inc incredibly greedy would feel in a kingdom of great charity. They simply, they would be living in an existence in a good world, but because they don't have the taste buds for it, it's miserable for them. Now, you did say, though, that your model is not against a retributive view. 
that it could fit in. Now, can you explain that a little bit? How, like, for example, you quote Aquinas talking about a penalty, a debt of penalty. How does that work in in a non-retributive way? Uh, well, so yeah, so my account was intended to say, look, you can be a Christian and you can remain committed to the theological picture on which uh, human beings are destined to heaven or hell. And that there really is the possibility of eternal suffering um, without thinking, even if you oppose the idea that God just sees it as good that wicked people suffer, right? Without having this picture where God, you know, you know, there's various elements of the church tradition where, you know, we have things like, you know, the saved in heaven take joy at the sight of the wicked burning, Right. And I, I think I find there's something morally troubling about these sort of views. And so what I'm trying to do is give an account of how we can explain this connection without appealing to uh, retributism. And that said, if you want to add in a retributive element to your position, there's nothing incompatible uh, with this story, right? That fits perfectly well. Um, and indeed, you're going to have to think that there are real penalties for sin if you want to be consistent with the testimony of Scripture. One of these penalties of sin, for instance, is death. And you're still going to need an explanation of atonement for how it is that we can overcome uh, death by means of Christ's death and resurrection and things of this sort. Okay, so he had to log off. We're going to keep recording still, though. Okay. So Paul actually had to leave midway through this uh interview because he was so offended by the things that you were saying, but I wasn't offended. So we're going to keep, we're going to keep trucking along. So, so just to, again, this is a lot of technical language. So we're trying to establish that Christianity gives a firm foundation to say that ultimately when all things are said and done, being virtuous leads to an experience of happiness, of pleasure. Uh, And that you can have that even with a retributive view, meaning that God is actively punishing those who are unrighteous, that this still fits into that. And that part of the misery of hell will be the experience of sinful people in a place that is righteous, that they don't, it's sort of like a, uh, you know, a circle around a square, a square peg circle kind of thing. Um, and, and then one of the things that you talk about, though, is. And you alluded this to earlier, the necessity of grace for this. So one thing you, you're careful to say is we're not saying that you live a good life and you become this kind of person that you don't need faith or you don't need grace or you don't need any of these Christian things. You're saying, no, actually, this is central to your vision of what it means to enjoy what the kingdom of God will be. That's right. So one concern that you know, should immediately arise when my view is sort of first described is you might think this is Pelagian, right? It's a straightforward. Can you explain Pelagian? It's a a Christian heresy which says, look, the only obstacle that we have to eternal happiness is our own sinfulness. And human beings, if we could just muster the energy to become good people, then we can be happy and we can be saved and we can be saved by our own efforts. Um, This is not the Christian picture, right? The Christian picture is one where we are saved through faith. Uh, And we are saved via the transformations that occur by grace. It is only through divine grace uh, that becomes imputed to us via the means of faith that we're able to experience this um, salvation. The thing that is distinctive of my account and that I think is consistent with much of the Catholic tradition, though is in tension with various elements of the Protestant tradition, is it treats sanctification as playing an important role in the process of salvation. 
So in order for you to experience joy in heaven or to enjoy heaven, you're going to need to be sanctified. That if you are a bad person in heaven, you are not going to enjoy it. Uh, And so part of the means by which God sees us as saved is through sanctifying us. And he sanctifies us by grace. Now, I think this is totally compatible with that Protestant insistence that we are saved by faith. Because I think sanctification is something that God wants to cooperate with us with. And so, because we are unable to make ourselves good, because we are vicious people and vice begets vice, when you are a bad person, you will do bad things. When you do bad things, you become a worse person. We're stuck in this downward cycle of bad people doing bad things, making ourselves worse. It's only by someone else stepping in that we're able to break that cycle. It's only by the Holy Spirit intervening in our life and us accepting that, that we are able to have that justification, which puts us on the path of sanctification by means of that sanctification, that we become glorified such that we can enjoy uh, paradise. And so in this way, uh, I think my account is perfectly consistent with the need for grace. I also think it's perfectly consistent with the need for grace in a second way, which is that none of this happens unless you're bodily resurrected. And bodily resurrection is something that only happens because we join in Christ's resurrection. So I don't exactly understand how the atonement works, but one essential element does seem to be that Christ enters into our death, that we might enter into his life in some way. I tend to think about it as a sort of Velcro model, right? That God became human and then plunged himself down, down into death, right? And became human. So he's the sort of thing that sticks to us, right? So like, like two pieces of Velcro, if I'm trying to get a you know, thing attached to Velcro in the bottom of a pea, I might stick another piece of Velcro down there and then pull it up, Right? Because two pieces of Velcro are the same thing, they can stick together. Because Christ becomes man, he can then stick to us in this way. And because he plunges down into our death, he can then pull us up with him. Uh, And so this is also going to, we're going to still need grace. We're still going to need to participate in Christ's death and resurrection. These are things that we can never do merely by our own efforts. We cannot simply buy uh, having good parents, for instance, become a good person who's able to receive this enjoyment. Um, it's always going to require cooperation with God and his salvific work through Christ. This is really helpful. I think even in Protestant visions of heaven, heaven is desirable because we imagine it to be the place where, I mean, there's no death, there's peace, there's all this stuff. Those are sort of earthly goods. And we think that what will make heaven enjoyable is that our environment will be perfected. We don't tend to think that what would make heaven enjoyable is the fact that we will be perfected. That that is the driving force that it's not so, I mean, it will be a perfected world, but a great part of the joy is that our natures by grace, our character will be so virtuous that we will have great love for things that are good. We will, we will love God's good world. We assume that the kingdom of God is a place that we'd want to be. And our track record, even as Christians shows that that's not the case, the way that we treat each other, the way that we treat Uh, our sin, the way that we treat uh, those who are less fortunate, that doesn't always show that. That's true. And I do maintain in the paper that everything I say is completely compatible with the joint declaration that was put out by Lutherans and Catholics. So I do think you can be fully consistent with a Protestant view of justification here and maintain this view, though it is at least a little bit more natural in line with Catholic Stories. Of well, th- there's also something interesting that you and, and you touch on some of these verses that are kind of peculiar. And I think Protestants sometimes have trouble with them about rewards, heavenly rewards. You see Paul talking about a crown of righteousness. You think about uh, that peculiar statement that Jesus says about how the first will be last and the last will be first, or that you know John the Baptist is the greatest 
on earth, but the least in heaven or something like that. Maybe I butchered that. But but there's this idea that there is a, a ranking, a hierarchy in the new heavens and new earth. And there's one way you can look at it where you talk about how maybe God just gives more stuff. However you want to conceive of that in heaven. He gives more stuff to people who have sacrificed more. But you flip it on its head. You go, what if God actually gives everybody the same stuff, but your character determines how much you enjoy it? So the person who, you know, you could think about the person who is, um, who, who loves the Lord uh, will, upon seeing him, have a greater joy than someone who doesn't love him as much. So there does seem to be a gradation. There seems to be levels of holiness, even though we're perfected. That's a strange thing, but that's something that I think Protestants and Catholics have to wrestle with. That in heaven, it's not as though we're all the same level of virtue, it almost seems. Otherwise, why would the apostles speak about certain people being first and certain people being last? And something that God and Jesus says a lot is that God lifts up the humble. And you would imagine that that the lower we are, the more humble we are, it's not so much that he gives us more stuff, but that our level of humility is related to the height of our joy. There's a, what is an inverse correlation there that the level of our humility increases to to the level that we are humble is to the heights of of joy that we will experience in the presence of God. Um, It is interesting how Adam and Eve, they're sinless, um, but they're not fully perfected. There seems to be you would think that if they had eaten from the knowledge of uh, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil at the right time, that they would have come to full maturity. There's actually a lot of Protestant exegesis that talks about that. Um, you even know that in heaven we're not going to have marriage, we're not going to have reproduction. So Adam and Eve weren't at the final quote unquote state of humanity. There was still room to grow. So you can be sinless and yet still grow in your virtues. You think about Jesus; he grew in virtue sinlessly, right? And, uh, and it, I think that's an important thing to think, man, in the new heavens, and new earth, part of what will make it more or less enjoyable, even among Christians, is the amount to which your own character is perfected. Right. And so this is um, something that St. Thomas Aquinas talks about um, in Summa Theologia, uh, where he talks about how Christianity has always maintained spiritual ranks, the sort of hierarchy of the saved. But one of the things he says is that this is a puzzle here. Um, because we'll all get the ultimate good, uh, in that we all get God, right? We all see God. So how can there be like, 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 you know, one person sees God, the other person sees God and gets a birthday cake. <laughs> exactly. The birthday cake has already been swamped by the fact we're all seeing God. So how could there be differences here if we're all getting the ultimate good? Right. Right. And what, uh, Thomas ends up saying is he says that, there's two senses in which we can talk about beatitude. There's the fact that we all get to be with God. We get to see God. And that way, all the saved are in the same position. But we won't all be the same because we won't all be able to enjoy that to the same extent. And we won't all enjoy it to the same extent, he thinks, because for Thomas, charity, love, is fundamentally love for God. And so the greater or deeper your charity, the more you'll be able to enjoy that vision that we all share of God. And I think this is the exact sort of picture that we want to have where God does not say, I'm only going to give myself fully to some of you, but not to all of you. No, God overflows in mercy and gives himself as much as he can to each person. But some of us are in a position, I think, that there are great saints in a much better position than I am to be able to enjoy that experience. All the friends of Narnia are in the same place. All of them are in the new creation. All of them have been given all the good things that Aslan can provide. 
But Lucy, who from the beginning was the one characterized most deeply by virtue and charity, is not in the same position as everyone else because she has a deeper appreciation of these good things. Her greater love for Aslan translates into a greater love for his country, and so a deeper and more lasting and more final enjoyment. Without thinking that it's because God only gave or gave her himself more. No, he gave himself fully to everyone. Um, but virtue might nevertheless play this important role in articulating the sense in which the first shall be last, that those who are the servant of everyone here on earth are glorified more fully than others in the new creation. That glory, I think, comes through the fact that a deeper and more satisfied charity is one that is rewarded in a certain sense by a deeper enjoyment of good things. So suppose that me and a friend are both given uh, tickets to some great classical music concert. Uh, We're both given the same reward. But if my friend has a deep love and appreciation of Bach and I barely listen to music, then even us both experiencing that same reward will differ in our enjoyment of it. The greater love that one has for music is going to translate into a greater enjoyment of the gift of music that one receives. Likewise, the greater one's love for God that translates into a greater enjoyment of the gift of himself that God will give to everyone. That doesn't mean there's any sense in which God gives different things to each person, but merely it means that because what God gives us, that good that he promises up is himself, there is no more important thing than love for God for making you into the sort of person who will be able to enjoy that final experience. And for someone who hates Bach... It would be a screeching, terrible mess. That's right. Right? Marshall, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for bringing Garrison along. And uh, we appreciate uh, you uh, sharing this article with us as well. Is there a way that we can link this for people to download if they want to look at it? Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. But again, thank you guys for listening. Make sure you subscribe, share this with a friend, get the word out. And uh, we'll be back next week.